This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm really excited today to bring you this book that I'm particularly interested in because it's sort of right up my alley with a, with a mix of history and a mix of uh, contemporary issues and uh, also one of my favorite areas or countries in the world, uh, China. So we have Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Dragon? Why China Has the Best and Worst Education System in the World. And this is from Dr. Yong Zhao. Uh, and uh, this was from Jossie Bass, 2014. So brand new, uh, hot off the presses. So everyone go check it out. And, and I'm excited to, to have uh, Yong on the, on the line today. Thank you very much for joining. Well, thanks, Ryan, for having me. Absolutely. So can you just tell us sort of how this uh, came together, like academically, how did you get interested in, in China and education? And, and just give me a little bit of a, your background. Well, my background is, first of all, you know, as uh, uh, someone who was uh, born and raised in China, particularly in a little village in Sichuan province, I have always uh, told people uh, I was supposed to be a farmer, but didn't work out for me. So I'm a failed peasant turned into <laughs> academia. That's uh, I found this might be a more interesting thing to do. And uh, the, uh, my background is really probably most boring to many people, and because uh, 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 they, uh, you know, I was born and raised in a place that's of no reputation whatsoever. It's mm. not that we never have a lineage of famous people, great place, not landscaping. Whenever I tell people, you know, I, no one can find it. So the, of the most ordinary of the ordinary, and myself too, is that because uh, I went to school in another village, and uh, that's uh, and then passed some exams and tests and didn't do that great on the test, did not get into a first-rate university, and, and which I mentioned that, by the way, is that uh, uh, I noticed uh, in one of the, uh, the comments about my comment in the New York Times, or I think in Washington Post, about the book, someone said, well, of course he says that because he graduated from a third-rate university, <laughs> and if he had gone to Beida or Tsinghua, he might have said something different. Right. Uh, maybe there's some truth to that. But anyway, so that's the... The, the general background, and I got into interested in writing about uh, about China. Is really actually not my uh, uh, you know my my in original intention. I mean, my my interest now since I've uh, lived in the U.S. for uh, over twenty years, and uh, I've uh, become very concerned about where American education is going. So most of my work actually really relates to 
uh, American education reform, and uh, uh, my uh, early in interest was in second language education, bilingual education, then educational technology, and uh, only right after No Child Left Behind, I got into the international education policy comparison and uh, found that American education, ironically, uh, in recent years, has been turning into more emulating the Chinese and East model to be more centralized, more standardized, and more testing. And uh, so, I wrote an earlier book in 2009. It was published by ASCD about uh, called "Catching Up or Leading the Way: American Education Age of Globalization." And uh, this one is really a follow-up to say, you know, why uh, China, you know, uh, Chinese education. Uh, is not the model emulate despite uh, its greatness. Uh, another main point, Ryan, is really about uh, uh, how do we define education? So I played that a little bit in the title called, you know, the best and worst education at the same time, the same thing. It is the best and it is the worst. Uh, another reason, of course, people ask, why do you choose? Who is afraid of the big bad dragon? That's really an a, a evolution out of who is afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, <laughs> is that we are always afraid of uh, the images we create, we imagine things, you know, so that, that's something. So I think uh, for Western readers, uh, whether in the general society or in education, we've created a, a, a really a poor image of China without knowing what's true behind it. Mm, absolutely. Okay. Well, let's uh, kind of dive in that a little bit. Nice little segue. Why or who, who, who who's afraid of, of the dragon or, or Maybe better yet, what are they afraid of? What are these numbers? What are these tests coming out? Uh, uh, you know, we have the Thomas Friedmans of the world. We have the Michelle Rees of the world. What are they saying about China, and, and why are they saying this about China? Well, I, I think it's the, the main thing is that uh, if you define education as uh, uh, a machine to homogenize people uh, to master a certain level, I would say actually a very rudimentary level of knowledge and skills and you measure them through some kind of standardized testing and you would find uh, uh, China and uh, uh, the likes, uh, Singapore, uh, Korea, uh, to be great if you think education is about uh, uh, making everybody master something and then measure that uh, with some kind of testing and China, you know, is. So, uh, you know, China has achieved uh, Shanghai in particular, the uh, number one twice in three subjects uh, and uh, uh, of the PISA recently. And Chinese students have always uh, outperformed others uh, in smaller scale international comparisons since the uh, 1980s, 1990s uh, in math and reading and a certain degree of, of uh, science. So uh, if you take that as a core indicator of quality of education, China has the best. And then some people uh, took it a further uh, you know, step further, like uh, Andrea Schleicher of the OECD, the PISA group, and other scholars, honestly, in the U.S. to educational researchers. And they think that also uh, indicates the capacity of our uh, youth that, uh, for uh, to have, a, uh, to have a successful life in the future. If you think test scores indicate the capacity for success in the future for individuals and then therefore uh, capacity for uh, economical prosperity of the future, then you say, God, China is rising. China is huh. going to overtake the U.S. We've got to catch up to them. So that's the kind of things we're afraid of. We create this image that is, uh, China is a threat. You know, China, we have to catch up to it and in education as well as in economics. So I think we have have, uh, uh, again, manufactured uh, this crisis and imagined uh, Chinese students coming to bomb Americans with math scores. Or <laughs> uh, still, may, uh, maybe much more, you know, 
even though it's still a difficult uh, feeling to have, maybe still more peaceful than you know some other thoughts of, that Americans have uh, around the world. But uh, certainly noted, and I think uh, what you, that's maybe sort of what you mean by best, right? They do have these test scores. The test scores are actually very high, and or sh- for Shanghai, and uh, it, you know, if we see other areas, they they do prefer they do perform quite well. Uh, now, there's a there's another good, interesting reason in your next chapter of why they perform well, and I always hear this quoted, uh, you know, two thousand years of, of testing or five thousand years of testing, however, you know, the numbers they want to count that as. Uh, but you, but you have this uh, imperial exam. And can you talk about maybe what that is and explain that to our audience and kind of uh, uh, how, how that's maybe connected? Well, I think the, uh, this imperial exam is, is uh, when the Chinese we call it Kezhi. It's basically a way for the, uh, the ruling class, the emperors, to select uh, uh, several servants. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evolution of that is actually much more interesting than most people think. Uh, you know, you can say... Well, it's a well-intentioned emperor wants to give everybody a chance to succeed, which I take actually a different interpretation. Is the emperor said, okay, uh, the you know a lot of em- for a good emperor, any good, a bad emperor, for emperor to what's his, in his best interest? He wants a stable dynasty to last as long as possible. And you, you probably notice, notice that the, the Chinese uh, dynasty, most dynasties, if it's absolute dictatorship or authoritarian system, uh, they, there's no uh, legal way of uh, succeeding power. It is always one get over the other, you know, through really brutal uh, uh, really killings of each other. Mm. So uh, the, you, if you don't want to trust those, your generals who have fought for you, who gained you those uh, things, you want to get rid of them, and you want to bring in other folks uh, who have no connection to you uh, to work for you. So that's one way that you do not want to kind of a cronism to bring people to succeed you, and if they fought for you, you get rid of the uh, you know the, the generals. So, but you still need people to work for you. So, what do you do? You you, you instill some exam, and the exam would say, okay, uh, you must listen to me. You learn all the confusion way to come uh, to basically comply with the orders of the the authority, and you equate uh, the emperor with the nation and with the state. So, and then I want to, you to I want to select those who. Are willing to comply and and who are good at complying, mm-hmm. and so that's how the exam you select. But there's another another interesting trick behind this is that if I give this thing as as if it's a very objective way of selecting everybody, so anyone can take the test, anyone can have the chance of succeed in the sense of meeting my expectation, and I'm the only owner of the the, the nation. I can give you all the resources you want. You know, once you succeed, if you comply. You pass the exam, you are rewarded with a great uh, social great honor, wealth, and power. So it's so attractive, you know. And even though very few can succeed, but everybody believes they can succeed. So they spend all the time, all the resources trying to become one of those who can succeed. So that's a way, even if we didn't succeed, I have consumed all the energy and resources of those who could put up a fight. So that's the best way in basically to bring instability. Then as a result, all the individuals, you know, for about 2,000 years, what do you do? You learn to comply. And you learn to say, I want to show the authority. I have done what you want me to do and then reward me with those positions. So we have developed this great habit and, uh, and culture uh, beliefs and all the kind of practices uh, to learn to take exams. Exams is basically showing a way 
I have complied with you. So those exams could be different. You know, we, we used to have exams in the Confucian traditions in other domains. But nonetheless, whatever those things are, it is showing that I know the answer you want. I know how to give the answer to you in the way you want and then give back, give my reward to me. I've done this. Mm, right. And then another thing that uh, I think is, is taken away in, in the book, talking about uh, how different dynasties would still use the exams, even if they weren't maybe uh, from Han, right? The Mongols came right. in and the Yuan dynasty, right? And, yeah. And well, they, that, that's why people claim, you know, that this is a great invention. I mean, mm-hmm. if you are a, a dictator, this is really a pretty cool <laughs> invention. Seriously, it's, uh, I mean, and uh, and people, uh, you know, you will be understand. It, it's indeed, people say, yeah, the, the reality, the end outcome might be saying that, yeah, we did allow people to emerge, uh, emerge as, you know, give a way of social mobility as a way to really bring more stability. And so that's why the Mongols took over some of this. They didn't do as much. But then the Manchurians, once they took it, uh, took it over the Qin dynasty, they actually really perfected the system mm-hmm. and uh, made it so, uh, you know, such a national way of selecting people and basically tricked everybody into, into it. Mm, right, right. So, I mean, always in, 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 you know, Chinese history, this this idea that, you know, even the invaders come in, they're going to have this Chineseness as well. Uh, so. Right, yeah. Well, this another because this is another Western, I think, uh, uh, misperception. Mm-hmm. You know, they call this meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is meritocracy, but it's merit in one thing. Remember, right. that's merit. You know, meritocracy can be many ways. I think that's, you know, in the West, we think meritocracy is automatically good. But it's merit in doing one thing. What about merits in other domains? Right. That's what we sacrifice, other kind of merits. So I think we, we need to really, uh, uh, now you are, let's say, in the U.S., we have one type of meritocracy. You go through, I mean, you are at Columbia, you say, well, God, we are at the, the top of the meritocracy. Well, that's academic testing. How do you get there? GREs, you know, your SATs, you, you get all those. But then we have other meritocracy. You have the Steve Jobs type of meritocracy. Yeah, allow you to evolve. And you have the sports guys. You have the Michael Jordan meritocracy. But if you if you judge that, you know, uh, Michael Jordan based on the meritocracy, Columbia takes most people, you know, academics, it probably wouldn't do that great. You know? Right, right. And, and you know, uh, maybe connecting to that a little bit is, you know, there's not only the tests to get into Columbia. They have these other scores of you know essays or things you've done like leadership and and, and things like that so uh that's and bless you know that's why the america in many ways you you have different uh, uh meritocracies in mm-hmm. not only one right right so i guess uh, uh kind of jumping back into the the historical aspect of this it, it, you mentioned how china was sort of poised to have some sort of uh, industrial revolution. They had all the ingredients, uh, and it and it just never materialized. And instead, it happened in Britain and all the other Western European powers. Uh, wh- what happened to China? Why did Why did China get left behind? Uh, according to uh, to your book, well, I mean, it's, uh, it, I think it, they, uh, um, it, there are many reasons. Of course, why is the one is in, uh, not only many economists said China was ready for the industrial revolution right. because the economy built that level around Ming Dynasty for right. two or three hundred years before uh, Britain had it. Uh, but you know, you analyze the whole thing to, for the industrial revolution to happen. You first have we need uh, a lot of people who are creative. 
And but you know, China did not not creative people, but who are creative in their own way, not to satisfy the needs of authority, but independently. So you got to have that, and you need to have a, a culture that rewards people for doing those things.、Mm-hmm. And those two things, China did not have. You know, China for、uh, one thing, that what we mentioned as a country, the system did not encourage people to be different, to、mm-hmm. to deviate from the norm,、right. and that's what creativity needed. And so we did not have a lot of creative talents in that domain. China had many inventions, as we mentioned in the book. And you know,、right. everyone noticed China's had many great inventions before, but、uh, they, those were more accidental. They could happen with a large population in a stable、uh, agriculture society. But for the industrial revolution to happen, you need more cumulative knowledge, have bigger inventions, and then you need entrepreneurs to work around those things.、Mm-hmm. And inventors, technical inventors, scientists, technologists, entrepreneurs, and they were not valued. Merchants were not valued in China, so they, we don't did not have the talents. Another thing is that the culture, you know, we value even today's China stability, harmony more than you know what they call、uh, perhaps chaos. But invention comes out of chaos, chaotic times, and、uh, so Britain relatively had a more open、uh, at that time. You know, the monarchy they were crashing down. This more、uh, kind of different.、Uh, uh, their part was the most open society at that time. They can tolerate different kind of ideas, and China did not have that then. So it just kind of unfortunately did not materialize.、Mm, right. So then we move into、uh, mid eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds. And China is being dominated by these、uh, Western powers. What, what was the response from the,、uh, I guess, the literati or the the, the Qing,、uh, you know, the top level Qing?、Uh, what, what was some what was some of their sort of answers to this, or what were they trying to do? Well, in the, in the beginning, most people did not think there's anything wrong with the Chinese culture. They just still look at the barbarians, you know, kind of tricked us. You have there's little, you know,、uh, tiny what they call this.、Uh, there's little、uh, technology skills. There was not much, you know. They're barbarians, and they and we were just too civilized to have to deal with them. And but of course, gradually realized there's much more than that. So there are some more enlightened people to tell, you know, the emperors and others to say, okay, the West did have more advanced tools. And、mm-hmm. weapons, and、uh, bolts, and guns, and they, they have to accept the fact. So they began to say, "Okay, we we got to learn about, it. we got to learn." But still, they believe that you know we got everything. We are more superior in our thinking, our civilization, our value. So all they got is the technicality. You know, if you know that any of the, the East Asian culture, we value both the the metaphysical things than the physical things.、Mm-hmm. So, so and so we said, "Well, well let's go learn their techniques. Let's learn how to make guns, making ships." Making modern machines, but still we're going to be rooted in our culture, our tradition, our Confucian. Well, I mean, actually today, twenty fourteen, China still think Confucius had everything figured out, you know. And so, so the and we, we still we, we deny it. So we try to learn. We send people to go abroad to learn all the techniques. We buy those machines, come in,、mm-hmm. and、uh, without realizing,、uh, machines and those things.、Uh, Come with their own philosophy, with a, a, a different kind of cultural values,、uh, and so then we got defeated by the Japanese, who had a, a major Westernization movement,、uh, and that really is a wake-up call for China. So they began to do more Westernization and gradually understand it's not really possible、uh, just to accept, you know, technicality, technology without dealing with the cultural values. Right, right, and I think that. Juxtaposition that you lay out in the book is interesting.、Uh, talking about sort of Japan maybe embracing、uh, 
uh, these knowledge concepts or maybe more cultural concepts along with the technological uh, uh, knowledge and know-how that maybe Japan or that China rejected. And, and it's uh, not even better displayed when the, uh, the boys come back from the Chinese educational mission. They, they trained up uh, in, in uh, Connecticut. They come back thinking they're going to be treated as heroes. You know, they went to study and then they come back and, you know, there's no trust for these, these, for these kids or boys, however you want to call them. And they're kind of thrust upon into this environment where nobody wants to really hire them or they can't really get the job because they're not in the system, but they have this know-how and it's very difficult. Uh, yeah, that's you know that's what they you know they uh, you know they, when they send uh, the, these kids uh, to study in the U.S., they're hoping they would only study the science, the technology without uh, enculturation. They had to call off this big mission to Westernize because these boys have become apparently more Americanized mm-hmm. culturally. So that end that then, uh, and then they were poorly treated upon returning to China, not uh, uh, because they were considered more like traitors in many ways. And that happened to, even after they, uh, they established you know, the, the uh, communist China, the so-called new China, you get a lot of people who went back in the 1950s to build new China, came from uh, uh, other, uh, the U.S. or European countries, and through a cultural revolution, they were treated, mm-hmm. a lot of them, as foreign spies and national traitors. There's no, still a lot of distrust in them. Uh, so that, you know, this I call the hesitant learner. China always want a half in a way to westernize. We only want your technology. We don't want your value. Right, right. And I, I think that's maybe, maybe a good segue into sort of uh, the Deng era and sort of what, you know, what Deng Xiaoping, you know, brought to the table, maybe a little bit different, uh, but I think, again, is is connected to that halfway westernization mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Can you maybe talk about Deng a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, after cultural, during cultural revolution, you know, the China's, this whole society was really near at the time of, of collapse, you know, it's, people were really poor, people were starving, the whole country was, was, was horrible, I and mean, really was, uh, and to save the country, to save the regime, and uh, I think they and others, uh, in a way, uh, intentional, unintentionally had to do something. And what they did, it was actually really interesting in the beginning. They basically withdraw authoritarian rule. They become less authoritarian. They let peasants to mm-hmm. farm the way they want. They allowed you know, abundant workers to run little businesses, uh, uh, entrepreneurs. They, through some interesting struggle, they brought in Coca-Cola. They mm-hmm. brought foreign investment in. Right. But remember, they're still constrained in science and technology. They're right. still doing this then. Then, of course, over after then, in 1978, until the last, over the last 40 years, there's always a regular or occasional a cleansing of Western contamination. You know, there's always a Western contamination culturally and uh, speaking. And uh, so every few years, something was coming down to say the West is trying to invade us, all those things. So we're still cleans the system. Uh, even today, we face an issue about, you know, we're always anti all way out Westernization. By the way, I'm not really endorsed with the Western way, it's the only way or, or absolutely the, the, the future. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you cannot, you know, try to separate technology. Technology from cultural values. You cannot separate a science from a general, uh, you know, a respect for freedom for for civil liberty. Sure, sure. And I think you know it's like an interesting point how it wasn't you know how you're how you're describing it. it sort of wasn't from the top. It was these low level peasants who were just fed up, 
and decided that they were going to go ahead and, and sort of, I guess, allot themselves uh, uh, different areas to farm and sort of this was very radical then, you know, not thinking for you know, people over in America, but uh, but Dung and, and sort of the, those reformers kind of let let it happen? Or Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that point, Ryan, was very important because I was used that as an example mm-hmm. to counter the argument, which is popular, again, in the U.S. and other Western countries, is China's economical growth, the miraculous growth over the last 30 years, is the result of wise planning, long-term planning by the authorities. And no, 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 it's actually completely wrong. They basically evolved with the people. It's the gradual withdrawal of authoritarian rule that led to it. And uh, so there was, there was no big grand designs that we shall go this route. It's so that's, that's some, you know, uh, it's just like education. You know, we, America is now infatuated with the idea of grand design, a common curriculum, common pedagogy, common assessment. That's not going to get it, you know. So that the economic growth is really allowing people their liberty, their freedom to do it. And another point I was going to add to that, Ryan, is that uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the Chinese government is kind of concerned. So we, we call everything that we want as, you know, we do not want as Western. You know, mm-hmm. Western values is not necessarily, you know, right now reflected in perfect in every government form. I mean, U.S. political system is different from U.K., and U.K. is different from France, you know. So we contact always against the Americans. It's, but there are some fundamental values, uh, they are universal values. I actually think they are in human values, you know, mm-hmm. respect and civil liberty. Human beings took a human beings thousands of years to arrive at this. It's just that universal is not really about, uh, you know, embodied in one or form or another form of government. Mm-hmm. Very, very good point, I think, uh, to, to make note of. Uh, I think, but jumping back into sort of uh, the, the Chinese context, and we're thinking of this point in history, uh, What what is, can you maybe explain the Gaokao and what that means in, in a Chinese context and, and maybe to some of the, the non-Chinese audience out there as well? Well, the, the, the Gaokao, or in English, is college entrance exam. And uh, it's just not one exam. It's really an entire system mm-hmm. about uh, how do we advance to college. You know, it's, it's about admission selection criteria, which has gone through many forms of, uh, you know, uh, reform at different times. This is the, the reincarnation of uh, the Koji or the imperial exam back in modern days is that uh, I remember until right in the 1990s, uh, China was a state-controlled economy. There were very few private enterprises, foreign places. So in essence, everybody who wants mobility is uh, through going to college. And once you go to college, you are you become a government office, a government person. When I passed my exam, went to college. In 1982, I became a government officer. I was I become a civil servant. So that's the still very much the only boss. So it, it is. It was uh, the only way for you to gain social mobility, to be in, uh, enrolled in the ruling class. And you are once you do it, you graduate. You are really guaranteed a, a kind of good job, much better than a peasant job. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and the wealth. It's not as glamorous as the an imperial exam, but we are taking more students in it as well. So that view is deeply in, uh, ingrained in the culture. So people want to do well. And the Gaokao for a long time, 
I'm, until still now, is still based on a few subjects. How well you test in a few subjects, Chinese reforming that, and that's practically the only way you do it. So your test, imagine your SAT determines whether you are going to have a good life or not. And so, of course, you will spend a lot of time studying for it. And teachers want to study,、uh, make sure you study it. Schools want to do it. So everything, even though it's only the only really exam that matters, but it trickles down to. Kindergarten to middle school to high schools, everything you do is surrounding that. It has tremendous power over people, and but of course, you know,、uh, but culturally, that's still the view, and many people still believe that's the only fair way to select people, and、uh, because every other thing allow, might allow corruption. So, after 1990s, you get more,、uh, we have a more diverse economy. We have a lot of private enterprises, foreign enterprises coming in, but still, people still believe the government job is the best job. So we still believe working with the emperor is the best. And、uh, so for that, you know, people、uh, naturally pay a lot of attention to this testing, and、uh, so it drives the whole education system.、Uh, and if, the only thing I can do is that、uh, I can, if imagine this for U.S.、Uh, listeners, is that. Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, whatever you are, all the or some community colleges all use the same exam to select students, and there's no other way for you to do, to do it. You、mm-hmm. fire all admissions officers, just have one way of doing those things, and everybody is ranked based on this test scores. And、uh, maybe Harvard, I don't know, Harvard is better than Columbia. You guys can argue that, but if Harvard <laughs> is better, you get a pick, you get your first pick, and then Columbia gets your pick. You basically ranks down the, the the whole system. You can imagine the pressure, right? And and throw, adding on there, you can only take it one time a year.、Yes. Yeah, and if well, I mean, some people you can take、uh, and before you can. There's very limited time to take it. It's basically all twelve years you have one chance to do it, and you can repeat next year. The next year,、yeah. but you know, used to have, even have an age limitation too. Right, right. Which is another aspect that I don't, maybe Americans don't realize about the system. You know, because the SAT you can take as many、yeah. times. You know, practice tests that kind of still count. I mean, there's there's much. Yeah, I mean, they, they are trying to allow more times you can take now, and、uh, but still, you know, the, it, it's you have to wait for one more year. It's offered, you know, once a year. Right, right. So you mentioned how there's there's a lot of. Discourse in China that believes that this actually is a meritocracy, but you get into a lot of reasons why it's actually、uh, not a meritocracy、uh, because of the advantages that are inherent with、uh, you know sort of being wealthy and other things. Can you kind of talk about some of those? Sure, you, you know you, you, you can. In the U.S., we have the same thing. Like a, a kid born in、uh, Mississippi Delta will not score well as well as someone born, let's say, in the, in the Westchester County down there in New York. You know,、right. So it's not going to happen. The same thing happens in China because you have the absolute、uh, the score and the resources you have is very different、uh, mm-hmm. from rural China and to、uh, urban cities. And so the opportunities for、uh, rural kids get in is actually very. Is much lower than the case in a you know, well-to-do place,、uh, but also another thing, of course, is that、uh, when they try to reform this, they say, "Well, let's consider a music, art, creativity." Now, if you're in that poor area,、uh, you don't have any access to、mm. those things. It's, it's not in you know, a true meritocracy. Another thing, of course, true meritocracy is that、uh, you know it looks like testing is fair. And、uh, you know when you are in one city, like for example in, in Beijing, that addressing this issue, you have more universities, 
and they admit more people from Beijing, which already have better you know, resources than a province that's a Sichuan or, or Guizhou or Henan province. So the percentage is higher anyway, and they have better universities, and so you are better endowed with resources, mm. you have better chance of doing this thing. How is that a meritocracy? Right, absolutely. And I, I love the chapter that you talked about, that, that little town that was basically set up completely around uh, sort of a, a school or it was like a boarding school around a yeah. whole town. There's no KTV right. bars. Right. There's no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I always thought that would be interesting just to go and maybe uh, see a documentary or look and see the well, town. Did you? Uh, you know, many people uh, in the U.S. like to visit Chinese schools. They go there, they, they come back. Oh, China is about constructivism, about innovation. They go to Beijing. They say there's great classes. I think the first place that you go is that place, that Anhui, the Maotan, uh, Maotan kind of middle uh, secondary school. Mm-hmm. They should drop in there to see that epitomizes you know, China's education, actually, to a degree, Eastern Asian education. So, Ryan, I suggest if you organize any education tours, that's the first place. Okay, that, I'll duly note it. I, I am actually really going to look into it for sure. So, uh, yeah. good, thank you for the advice. No, so, getting into, you know, after these students leave and go to high school, or sorry, go to uh, university, uh, what, what's the quality of, of universities like? And especially, I think you get into it when you talk about sort of research capacity. What's the problem with with uh, this research issues in China, and what's kind of going on that maybe uh, others aren't aware of? Well, you know about uh, universities and about China's innovation capacity. I think again there is uh, uh, this uh, misperception of uh, China's great innovation, creativity. America should worry about that. And uh, again, they are looking at the numbers. They look at uh, the rising, the really sharp, stunning rising of uh, uh, number of patents uh, filed and uh, applications, number of research papers published in English. You know. So they look at those. Uh, if you, again, pure look at numbers, like you look at test scores in education. It is stunning. It's amazing. But again, you, you analyze in China, one of them is the uh, rampant fraud. Mm-hmm. You know, one research can manufacture, researcher can manufacture 30 some papers in one year, publish international journals, which end right. up being kind of recalled. And, it's, uh, and that's just very, uh, just a lot. Oh, you see, people are uh, coming up, you know, this college kid had more inventions than young Thomas Edison. You know, just, uh, <laughs> and, and, and when they examine this, there are no quality patents and uh, no quality papers, a lot of plagiarism, and there's uh, really a business that will help you to plagiarize. It's like uh, Americans have this. American, I think Americans still now you know, we have online paper writing services for college students, high school students, right? Mm. But not, but not. Mm. I, I haven't seen one for for university professors yet. <laughs> so if you want to have your PhD, Ryan, forget about it. Not yet. <laughs> you may be able to buy it from China, but not in America right. so far. It is. Uh, and so you, you see a lot of this. Uh, the quantity, the, the quantity is there. I mean, and the quantity is really low, and uh, which is admitted by many. Chinese are officials is not uh, so. There, there are many people notice that, and uh, they uh, and they, you know as a one I don't know as one time it's, it's a, at one time the number of PhDs and uh, graduates in, who are holding university uh, professorship and uh, also research uh, scientists in China was very low. The number how could you do it? I mean, like uh, so today, serious research needs some kind of training. Know, discipline and uh, you cannot just do it you know, it's, uh, and you do not have to necessarily have to have a degree to have this training 
But in general, most research, yeah, right. that's, you, know, you have a higher probability. Yes. So if you have uh, only an undergraduate degree, will turn into work-class uh, researchers, uh, in modern day anywhere, that's actually not very likely. It's, uh, it's, right. uh, I mean, you could, but we could have not have so many geniuses. It's, it's, uh, that's not, uh, and so and it's, it's improbable. So how did that happen? Again, I, you know, I, I go back to saying it's authoritarianism. So this, by the way, I want to say that uh, nobody's immune to fraud, mm. but a system can be designed to encourage more fraud. You know that because it's authoritarianism. You see, basically, I have this wishful thinking. You know, the great emperor said, "We want this, and mm. we reward you and punish you accordingly." And if you can't do it, what do you do? You commit fraud. And that's basically because you don't believe it. You know, you have no passion for it. There's no general principle, and uh, you have no capacity to produce. But your life is. Uh, Kind of uh, uh, no, uh, dependent upon it. Right. So what are you going to do? You just come with fraud. That's what, why in America we're seeing all the schools, school systems, uh, teachers cheating on behalf of students. And so that's the same way. Because once you have a quantitative way of monitoring people and forcing people to comply with authoritarian wishes, that's not realistic. You end up with fraud, right? And I think I, I think that's a good point. Just we're not sitting here picking on on China for this reason. I mean, you open up the book actually with uh, the was the Atlanta principal, yes, uh, yeah, who was arrested for for doing this exact thing. You know, cheating on on these exams or changing the answers and things like that. So certainly, you know, thanks, Ryan. For I really did not write the book to pick on China. Mm-hmm. I certainly I write the book to pick on. Humanity, whatever system you design, you will end up with the consequence. Mm-hmm. So it's not of a Chinese standpoint, a case of this. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I guess, you know, talking about some different actors in this, you know, we already kind of talked about this, calling it sort of this authoritarianism type of uh, education. But how about, uh, I, I really like how you set this up with Prisoner's Dilemma. And uh-huh. with uh, sort of, can you describe maybe to, to, to the audience of Prisoner's Dilemma and how, how it works in this situation? Well, right, I mean, you, 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 if you play any game, if you watch the movie, then like uh, the, the Beautiful Mind, you would know John Nash, you would know all those kind of basic ideas. You know, there's fancy terms for this. Uh, and the Prisoner's Dilemma is basically the idea that uh, suppose, you know, you and your buddies are caught drinking and, or doing something bad, and you are, and the cop comes to offer different bargains. And uh, so, and you could collaborate. That means both of you exist to try to deny that we didn't do it, and you may serve, like I said, three days. And uh, I'm just um, simplifying this example. Yeah, yeah, sure. Or you can, but the cop can say, but if you can sell your friend out, you will, or you will go for free, and so then, or if you both are trying to say, trying to, I think, uh, deny, you may get seven days, something like Six that. Years so, so the whole idea is that you want to get the what no one do, people in a prisoner's dilemma is you will always, without knowing what the other person do, you assume the worst situation. You assume that guy is going to sell you up, so you're going to sell him up. So mm-hmm. both of you get, uh, you know, the kind of worst situation. That's what we happens to like to gas stations, you know. Why are gas stations always at this opposite of each other? Well, if they back off another half mile, another half block, they might get more business. But they are afraid, if I move back, you're encroaching in. You're going to get more customers. So I'm going to back this. That's why you say all the fast food stores, the gas stations. No, they always do this thing. So now in this situation, that's how it calls arms race. You know, like even we say, okay, U.S. and Soviet Union, it's okay, I want to 
Uh, I'm going to if I back off, you're going to have more nuclear weapons, oh, right. and that's not good for me. I assume you will not automatically or voluntarily uh, kind of uh, reduce your stockpile. So I'm going to build more. So in this case, in China, so China has been doing a lot of great trying to to education reforms, to lighten the academic road, to bring more flexibility. Uh, to uh, reduce academic burden and uh, reduce impact of testing, but has had really little impact. Mm-hmm. Remember, parents want it, government wants it, teachers want it, schools want, want, it, want all this new reform, but no one is willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Because if one parent or school always said, if I do not force my kids to prepare for the test, but you do, my kids will lose. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to do more. So we're doing more of the same things. So it's like arms racing. We're doing the bad thing doing more bad things because I, I think you will do the same thing. So that's very hard to get out of it. You know, we're going to be stuck in, in that situation. Right, right. So I guess it's kind of almost uh, a, set up as a lesson uh, for other countries maybe not, you know, not to follow this model. That's kind of your, your uh, position here, correct? Well, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's uh, if America goes to that model. Remember, America's today's argument is that we want to hold teachers accountable. Mm-hmm. We want to publicly shame or, or honor our teachers. We want schools compared against each other. If that becomes a cultural norm, imagine this, Ryan, that, you know, let's just take a look at uh, all the, because I know the Westchester County schools very well and Long Island schools. If we pit them against each other, or teachers against teachers, mm-hmm. or students against students, make a norm reference selection, so called meritocracy, in a narrow way, uh, uh, people will try to kind of try everything, raise the test scores. Right. And once we get there, who would want to let go? Sure. Because if you let go, you'll be shamed. I, I went, you, you, by letting go something, pursue something, good, you think, in general, but you may give that immediate advantage to the other guy. Mm. Yes, right, right, absolutely. So, uh, you know, also, if you could uh, mention sort of, we look at these tests, right, that China is, you know, outscoring uh, all the other countries in the world, but what what's wrong with those tests? Uh, and, and, you know, are they an accurate representation? Well, no test is, is accurate, uh, I know, measure of a person's capacity or, or of the past or the future. It's just uh, at best, at the best, it measures, you know, uh, how well uh, you know or uh, the answer that some kind of test makers made. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, that's, and they, you do not measure exceptional talent. And I was uh, joking, if you, let's say, Albert Einstein, I think he's a great physicist. And uh, if he took the same uh, uh, physics test as a, a ninth grader, hey, and the best you can do is score as be- score from the same as the best the guy who has hundred percent on the ninth grade te- physics test. Do would you say he has the same type of physics ability as the other guy? Well, maybe it, on the test, you know, so right. it's relevant. So another thing is that um, you know we we are uh, human survival, human success depends on a lot of non-cognitive skills. You know, uh, let's say confidence, resilience, responsive sense of responsibility. You know, growth mindset, grit. None of those can be shown on a test. Right. And so, and a test, you know, by pursuing those things, it might actually damage the development of those. Right. Right. So, what, what, in your opinion, uh, is sort of, what is China going to do, or what, what are they going to try to do? China is trying to change that. China is trying to broaden the definition of educational outcomes. Uh, trying to again uh, lighten student uh, academic burden and. Uh, 
uh, trying to uh, also work towards uh, uh, increasing uh, student uh, and teacher autonomy and giving universities more autonomy and meeting students. They're all that really they're trying to do the right things, mm. and uh, I have to say, uh, but how successful they can be remains uh, questionable. Right, absolutely. Well, we're kind of uh, coming to an end. Do you, do you have any uh, uh, final parting words uh, uh, on the book? Well, thanks for, 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 for the interview. It sounds really good. I hope uh, people will take a, a, a look at the book. And uh, I'm working on a new book that's going to say, okay, so uh, what should we do in the sense of uh, education reform uh, in the U.S. and other places? So people say, now you pointed what we cannot do, uh, what can we do? Mm-hmm. So that's going to come out in the next book. Uh, no good title yet. And uh, <laughs> But thanks, Ryan, for all the work uh, you've, you've done reading the book. Yeah, absolutely. It was my, my pleasure. So we'll, we'll look forward to that book as well. Uh, but first, we have uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Dragon? Why China Has the Best and Worst Education System in the World. Uh, and that's by Yong Zhao from Jossie Bass, uh, 2014. So everyone, think, uh, I want to check that out. And thank you very much for joining me today. And I hope you like it. Thank you.